0: Remain standing for the reading of the word of the Lord. This is in your house Bibles on page 587. James chapter 5, verses 7 through 11. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it. Until he receives Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning, Crosspoint. My name is
1: Good morning. That was great. That was more than I was expecting. My name is John. Uh, I have the privilege of serving on staff here at Crosspoint Downtown along with my wife Arla. I have the privilege of calling Crosspoint Church our church home. Uh, this morning I have the opportunity of opening God's Word both for you and with you. I need this as much as you do. And so um, I'm excited to do so. Uh, the Lord has been very gracious and um, kind with our church. He's given us a number of capable, qualified, and godly men um, to teach us God's Word week in, week out, and I'm humbled and honored by the privilege to be asked by them um, to open God's Word for you this morning. And so, if you haven't already, I encourage you to open your Bible to the book of James chapter 5. Again, that's James chapter 5. We will be exploring um, the theme of patience this morning. We'll be looking at verses 7 through 11 in chapter 5, and so I encourage you to get it in front of you. If you're joining with us for the first time this morning or you've missed the last few weeks, we're in the middle of a series on the fruit of the Spirit, a series about what it looks like for us as Christians to cultivate Christ-like character in our lives. In Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, Paul gives us a ninefold ingredient list of what this fruit of the Spirit consists of. He writes that in contrast to the sinful way of life, living in our flesh, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And then he adds and he says, Against such things there is no law. As Christians who are led by God's Spirit... We are to be a patient people. This ought to be a characteristic of our lives. But the sad reality is we are an impatient people, aren't we? We live in an age of on-demand entertainment, same-day delivery, live broadcasting, non-stop flights, no connections necessary, microwaved meals, express lanes, instant messages, we also live in a day where you can go through a drive through in three minutes or less and if one drive through wasn't enough, most of these restaurants have two drive-throughs because one's not fast enough for us. And so, I would go on to say, um, uh, give you a few more examples, but in reality, it would only test our patience and therefore prove something we already know is true, that we are impatient people. Everything we want, we want it now, if not by yesterday, and so, Carrie Fisher, I thought this was interesting this week, she's the famous actress that played Princess Leia in the Star Wars movies. She uh, was quoted one time, and I wanted to look and make sure it was true, and she actually said this. She said, and I quote, instant gratification takes too long. Instant gratification takes too long. And so everything we want in life, we want it now. And so the, the conclusion is nothing is fast enough, and it's also true that nothing is worth waiting for. We don't know what it's like to have to wait for something. And yet the sad reality is also that the faster our world gets, the more impatient we become. Things just never seem to come fast enough. We think waiting is in itself a waste of our time. We used to, what used to take a man on horseback weeks to deliver across the country can now be done in an instant through email. Click, read, delivered, uh, replied instantaneous responses. We can pick up the phone and call somebody instantaneously. We don't have to wait for anything. Now, I don't know about you, but I love online shopping. You're like, what? And I'm not talking about shopping for everything. I'm talking about books. Yeah, I'm a nerd, I love to read. And so the only thing for me that's better than getting a book in the mail is getting a book in the mail within a day or so. And the funny thing about it is, I could think that it it could be done faster. And then even sadder truth is, I don't even pick up the book immediately and start reading it. It goes on my shelf. If you come to our house, you'll see a bookshelf full of books, most of which I've never even read, but all of which I was impatient to receive in the mail. And so we are an impatient people. Some of us are more impatient than others, but we are all impatient nonetheless. And yet most of us have no idea how to remedy this impatience. And up until this moment, some of us may not have even realized how serious it was. And so this morning, I wanna walk us through this passage of James, and I want us to hear what God would say on this theme of patience. We'll walk through it in three parts, looking at patience from three different angles. And I'll give them to you on the front end. Number one, be patient with God. I see this in verses seven and eight. Two, be patient with people. I see this in verse nine. And finally, be patient like those who came before us. I see this in verses 10 and 11. Now, I'm going to let you know on the front end that we're going to be spending most of our time in the first point, so that way when I finish it and you're looking at your watch and you're thinking, we're going to be here all day, you can relax and breathe. The, the next two points are going to take a little bit less time. And so, while I want to preach on patience this morning, I don't want to test yours, and so let's go ahead and dive right in. So our first first angle on patience is in relation to God and the circumstances he sovereignly allows to enter our lives. And so first, be patient with God. James tells us in verse seven, be patient therefore brothers until the coming of the Lord. James is writing to a group of Jewish Christians who were scattered outside of Palestine nearly 2000 years ago. These Christians are facing trial, persecution, hardship. Many of them are having a really hard time. And it's to these people that James writes his letter, and I believe, by extension, I believe he's also writing it to us this morning. And he would have us hear his exhortation, be patient. And so it's important for us to ask at this point, before we dive too much in, what exactly is patience? Now, the Bible uses two terms in the New Testament, two Greek words, to talk about what we translate as patience. Both of these words we are called to exemplify as Christians. And so we're going to look at what those look like. The first word uh, for patience has to do with endurance in the midst of trying circumstances. It's an attitude of heart with respect to things. It has to do primarily with the circumstances we face. Paul uses this word in Romans 12 when he calls Christians to be patient in tribulation. The word tribulation that Paul uses here means pressure. And so when we feel the pressure of and the weight of life pressing in around us, and James would have us hear the words, be patient, endure. And so, but he doesn't also just stop there. He doesn't just say, be patient and endure it. He says, be patient and endure it with gladness. And with joy. Earlier on in chapter 1, he writes, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet uh, trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Another word for endurance or another word for patience. And let this steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And so notice here that James doesn't tell us trials are meaningless or pointless or without purpose in our lives. He acknowledges that life is hard, that circumstances are difficult. Life is not as easy as we thought it would be. And yet at the same time, he would let us know that we can have a joy when we face these hardships. He doesn't leave us alone. He says, for the Christian, hardship can be a fertile soil for cultivating godliness. Trials of Tribulation uh, can be, and I'm sorry. God's great by God's grace, the soil of tribulation and and trial can produce the uh, fruit of patience in our lives. Every hardship or trial we face in life faces us, uh, presents us with a choice. We can be joyous, or we can have sorrow. We can endure, or we can escape every trial presents us an opportunity to worship and and exercise our faith in the sovereign God. In his book, The Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis um, gives us a glimpse of what it looks like for the enemy, um, the strategy he uses to make us doubt God. The book is a collection of letters written between two demons. A mature demon by the name of Screwtape, letters written to his pupil in the ministry, if you will a younger demon by the name of Wormwood. And in this letter, um, Screwtape is advising Wormwood about how to best cause destruction and to cause us to doubt God. In this one particular letter, he writes, in attacks on patience, chastity, and fortitude, the fun is to make the man yield just when, had he but known it, relief was almost in sight. Christian, relief is in sight. This is why James grounds his call to patience in the coming of the Lord. We see this in verse 7. He says, Be patient until the coming of the Lord. Christ is coming. Here is the reason we can be patient. Christ is coming back. We've seen this in every passage so far that we've studied in this series. If you look back to the passages we've studied so far in this series on the fruit of the Spirit, you will see a a, a mention or a comment of the return of Christ. Christ will come back. It's mentioned in every one of our passages we've studied so far. The New Testament writers, time and time again, ground their exhortations and their encouragements in the certain and sure return of Jesus Christ. And so I want you to hear me this morning. If there is no return of Christ… If there is no judgment day, if there is no end to the seemingly endless cycle of violence and injustice we see, then there is no reason to be patient. And of all things, we are a people to be pitied because we have believed in a man who died and decayed 2,000 years ago over in the Middle East. If there is no resurrection hope for Christians or for anybody, then let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. If today is all that we have, then Carrie Fisher was right. Instant gratification takes too long. We have no time to waste. If we want it, we have to grab it now. If all we have is on this side of the grave, then we had better make the most of it. And if there is no judgment, then nothing is off limits. We can do whatever we want. There's no eternity to pay. There's no consequences. There is also no relief on the way. This is why so many people live the way that they do. And against this line of thinking, James asserts that the Lord is coming. Christ will return. We get a picture here, or the picture used here is of a king returning to his kingdom. James mentions it and emphasizes it multiple times in this passage. In verses seven and eight, he refers to the coming of the Lord. In verse eight, he says that the Lord is at hand, meaning that his return could happen any moment. It could happen while I'm preaching. It could happen today. In verse 9, he says that God is a judge standing at the door, prepared to enter any moment and exercise his just judgment. But as Christians, we know how this all ends. We have the benefit of viewing this present life in view of eternity. In Revelation, the last book of the Bible, we get a glimpse of that day when Christ returns. The Apostle John writes in Revelation chapter 21. I am making all things new. And so, Christian, we can be patient because the Lord is coming. We can be patient because Christ will return. If we ever lose sight of that day, patience won't make sense. It will be a temptation too great for us to bear. And we'll lose sight of the hope that we have in the middle of the trials we face. We'll end up giving in just when relief was almost in sight. And so, why have I titled this first angle, Be Patient with God? I've done that because, in reality, our circumstances are governed by God. He is sovereign over all things. Now, this can be a hard truth to swallow. This can be a a hard thing to accept and, and, and be encouraged by. But for those of us who believe the Bible and what it teaches about God's sovereignty, we're left with nothing but to trust Him. But we also read in the same very Bible that God is kind and compassionate and merciful. And so we have a God whose character we can trust on. We can trust in his sovereignty. And so this morning, I want to give us a few reasons for why we can be patient with God in the midst of our trials, and there's two of them. The first is that we can be patient with God because God is doing something around us. God is working all things for our good as well as for his glory. The Apostle Peter in his second letter reminds us, do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises as some count slowness, but catch this, but is patient toward you not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God is working out His redemptive plan in the world around us. It's either for our own good or for the good of others. It's for the good of those who have yet to come into faith uh, in Christ. And so this morning, I want to speak a moment to those who are here who are not a Christian. and, And by... That I mean, you have not repented of your sin. You've not trusted in the substitutionary work of Christ. Let me speak to you for just a moment. Christ will return. And contrary to what you may have heard from some people on TV or in books you read or posts you see on Facebook, Christ's second coming will not be like his first. In Christ's first coming, he came as Savior. In his second coming, he will come as judge. For the Christian, this is both a comfort and a consolation. We can can take comfort in this reality. But for a non-Christian, this will be a confrontation, and it should be a cause for concern. And this is why. Because all of us are guilty in the judge's coming. None of us are innocent. We all have a rap sheet of sin that we cannot atone for, and we all have a record of debt we cannot pay. Christ will come. Christ will come. And for those who have not accepted his work on their behalf, they will receive a verdict of guilty, a verdict which is punishable with God's wrath. And so this morning, I plead with you. I don't know how you walked in. I don't don't know. I don't know all of you. I don't know most of you. But I plead with you, if you are here and you are not a Christian, this is not something casual we do. This has eternal significance. A decision you make this morning could echo on through eternity. This is no light matter. And so I plead with you, I plead with you to come to Jesus this morning. I want to encourage you with these words from Paul, or actually they may be an encouragement, they may not. He writes in Romans chapter 2, he says, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Do you presume upon it? Not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So I urge you this morning, repent, trust in Jesus. As Christians, we wait for the day when Christ returns. We pray, come Lord Jesus, come. But at the same time, while we wait for that day, we plead with our neighbors, come, come to Jesus, come to forgiveness, come to mercy, come to salvation. So this morning, would you come to Jesus? Our pastors would love the opportunity, we love, this is why they do what they do, we would love the opportunity to talk to you about what it looks like to put your faith in Christ. The people next to you would also love to have that conversation with you. And so if you're thinking in this moment, John, I, I wanna have that conversation, tap the person next to you, even right now, I'd permit you to do that. And just say, hey, can we talk after the service? They would love to talk to you about what it looks like to follow Jesus. And so first, we can be patient with God because he is doing something around us. But second, we can be patient with God because he's doing something inside of us. God is conforming us to the image of Christ. He is cultivating Christ-like character in our lives. James gives us the illustration of a farmer waiting for a harvest. Now, last year I had the opportunity of going with my wife to Pennsylvania to visit her grandparents. And while we were there, um, I had the opportunity to work alongside her grandfather, who they call Pop Pop. I got to help Pop Pop plant some corn in his backyard. And I realized pretty early on that I knew very little, if not nothing, about farming. But I did pick up a few things when I was there. One of those things was that farming is hard work. Seeds and crops don't grow themselves. You have to work the ground. I also learned that farming is a faith-forming work. That no matter how much work you do, no matter how much time, effort, and sweat you put in, you're dependent upon favorable conditions. These favorable conditions are what James refers to as the early and the late rains. If you look back in the Old Testament, the book of Deuteronomy, you'll see that these rains come providentially from God. They're not random. They're not happenstance. They come from God who provides. And so I learned that farming is hard work and that farmers work diligently while they wait patiently, expectantly, desperately for the rains to come. And so in our trials, God is growing the fruit of Christ-like character inside of us. And as Christians, we are to work, live, and labor as well as rest in the fact that God is doing something in us that we are incapable of doing on our own. As Christians, we ought to be patient with God. He is doing something. He is up to something in our waiting. It isn't without purpose. It is either for our good, as I've said, or for the good of others. Many of us sitting here this morning, we're patiently waiting on God for something. That could be a living situation. It could be waiting for a house to sell. It could be waiting for the right house to buy. It could be waiting for the right house to rent or the right roommates to share it with. I encourage you even now as you're thinking of what that thing you're waiting on, God, write it down in the corner of your notes. Get it in front of your face and pray about it this week. Some of us are praying for and waiting on God to bring a companion into our lives. We're waiting for God to bring a a man or a woman who loves the Lord and who will love us for the rest of our lives as our spouse. We're waiting. Others are waiting for God to heal a deep wound in our lives. Some of us are waiting for God to restore a relationship that's been broken for way too long. Others of us are waiting for God to come through with a job waiting for God to come through with a job for a way for you to provide for your family, to take the next step in life, to have more to share with others who are in need. And so we wait as God's people on a whole host of things. And it may not be something I mentioned. There are tons of things that we are waiting on God for. But at the same time, it's important for us to ask a question, and it's not a question that you're gonna expect the question is, can we not wait longer for God? Can we not wait longer for God? Thomas Watson, he was a Puritan preacher in the 17th century told you I was a nerd. I like this stuff. He was once asked, uh, or he once asked us I'm sorry why cannot we wait for God? God has waited for us. Did He not wait for our repentance? How often did he come year after year before he found fruit? Did God wait for us? And cannot we wait for him? A godly man is content to await God's leisure. He's content with awaiting God's unfolding of his timetable. Though the vision is delayed, he will wait for it. Now, I can't tell you why God is having you wait but I can tell you that whatever God is doing is worth the wait. God may not come through the way you wanted or even expected him to, but he will come through in just the right way at just the right moment. He is compassionate. He is merciful. He is trustworthy. He is dependable. When we learn to be patient with God in the circumstances, he sovereignly allows to enter into our lives we are better able to exercise patience with others. This is our second angle on patience, being patient with people, being patient with one another. The second word used for patience in the New Testament is one used here by James in in chapter five. It has to do primarily with being patient toward the people who cross our paths and invade our space. It has to do primarily with uh, an attitude of heart with respect to people as opposed to things. Some versions of the Bible translate it long-suffering. But in all likelihood, this probably isn't a, a normally used word in your vocabulary. You may not admit it, but I'll admit it. I, don't, I, don't, I can't think of the last time I used, or, or used the word long-suffering in a conversation with somebody. And so, let me make it real simple. We've all heard of being short-tempered with somebody. Yeah? This is the flip side of that. This is the opposite. This is being, if you will, long-tempered, bearing with others. And so, this is the second word that the New Testament uses for patience. And so, with this long-temperedness, we are to be patient. We are to be long-suffering toward them, meaning that we are to be long-tempered with them, bearing in their weaknesses, bearing in their shortcomings, bearing with them in their immaturity, bearing with them in the unwise decisions they make, and even bearing with them in the sinful actions they take, sometimes even against us. In this passage, James calls us to patience, the opposite of which is impatience, and which often manifests and and exposes itself in the form of grumbling or complaining. This is often done against one another, about one another. And this is why James tells us not to do it. Grumbling flows from impatient hearts. And grumbling is something that is worthy and deserving of God's wrath and judgment. Now, it's quite easy and quite easy to feel justified in grumbling or complaining when things don't go your way, especially when those things don't go your way because of the actions and decisions somebody else made. But James doesn't call us to easy things. He writes an entire book calling us to very, very hard things. And we need look no further than the fact that James calls us in this passage to patience. Patience isn't easy. It's not. We are impatient with the person who cuts us off while driving, whether they did it on purpose or not. They may have happened on your way here this morning. We get impatient with the people at the grocery store who go in the express lane with well over 10 items in their cart, whether that person even recognizes it or not. We are impatient, and I'm going to be, I'm going to confess personally with you. We are impatient with that neighbor who wakes you up at 3.30 in the morning, whose dogs are barking the night before you're trying to preach a sermon on patience. We're impatient with all these people. But the truth is, these particular people don't cross our paths very often. In fact, we may only see them once or notice that we've ever seen them once. And so it's kind of easy, fairly easy to get over our impatience and and our complaining of, of what they did. But as impatient as we can be with these people, the reality is we tend to be most impatient with the people God sovereignly places closest to us. This is your spouse sitting next to you this morning. This could be your friend. This could be your coworkers. This could be your roommates. This could be your fellow church members. And so we often think that it's acceptable to grumble and complain to these people because, well, you know, they're invested in our lives. They can take it. They love us enough. But it's not fair. And James would have us be patient with these people. This week, my wife and I, we had the opportunity of going to this coffee shop over in Winter Park that we go to uh, quite often. It's where we had our first date. It's where I asked her to marry me. She said yes. That's what that's for. In case you were wondering. We went there to spend time together. We went there to relax, to breathe. We went there to read. I've told you numerous times, I'm a nerd. I love to read. And I was preparing for this sermon, and the author that I was reading, he was encouraging um, us to have somebody close to us um, ask and help us to expose those areas of our lives where we're impatient, particularly those areas where we're most impatient. And so I'm reading this, preparing a sermon. And my wife's right next to me. I'm like, I gotta do this. And so I asked my wife to help me with that, um, and we came up with a list. I'll be honest with you, it was hard, and she didn't want to tell me. Um, but I told her, I said, I'm inviting it, so I'm not allowed to get mad at you. Now it was it was hard. Um, but it was very, very helpful. And so I encourage each of you this morning, as you, whether today or this week, um, even before community group on Wednesday, um, ask your spouse, ask your friends, ask, your, um, ask the people at God's place closest with you. Help them to expose those areas in your life where you're most impatient. Maybe at work, maybe when you're driving, maybe at home. Ask them to help you see those areas. And so the reality is we're most often blind to our own sins, And this is precisely why God gives us Christian community. He gives us brothers and sisters to help us see the blind spots in our lives and to do so in a gracious, kind, and forbearing way. But the truth is, if we were to be honest, our circumstances and the people God allows to intersect our lives, they're not really the real cause of our impatience. We can't blame our circumstances. We can't blame the people God brings in our lives. Jerry Bridges writes, he says, "'These circumstances merely provide an opportunity "'for the flesh to assert itself. "'The actual cause of our impatience "'lies within our own hearts "'and in our own attitude of insisting others around us "'conform to our expectations.'" So this morning, we can't just listen to a sermon and walk out and not ask ourselves the hard questions. We have to ask ourselves the hard questions, invite other people into our lives to help us answer them, and we have to confront questions such as, why are we so impatient? Why am I so impatient with people? It's tough. It's tough. But I would encourage you guys be patient. Be patient with God in the circumstances He sovereignly allows to enter our lives. And be patient with the people he providentially brings into our lives. Refuse the urge to give in to the temptation of grumbling, complaining. And lastly, be patient like those who came before us. James gives us an example of patient endurance in the midst of suffering. But he gives us this example from a very, very odd place. The story of Job. Now, I don't know about you, but I've read the book of Job a few times, and None of those times have I ever walked away thinking this is a story about patience. I've walked away thinking, wow, this is a book about the sovereignty of God over suffering or a book in the Bible about the problem of evil. But I've never once considered it a story about patience. That is until James helped me to see it that way. And so, we often think of the book of James or the book of Job as how to deal with suffering. James says it's a book about patience. And so I'm going to briefly recount it for you, but I want you to keep in mind while I'm doing it that James is, is using this example to encourage Christians. We're going to read this and hear the story and think, that's encouragement? We read the book of Job and we associate it with words like pain and suffering, hardship, and trial. And James read it, reads it and he says, you know what? I'm going to go and encourage somebody with this. Only James can do that. And so we, we often see, you know, those people walking around with those um, pocket testaments. Uh, they have the Psalms and the Proverbs in them. People open them up periodically, and they, they look for daily encouragement. I've never once seen somebody walking around with a pocket version of Job. It's because people don't normally open, I oh, mean, I really need encouragement today. Oh, book of Job. We don't do that. But James points to Job as an example of patience. And so let me recount briefly the story here. In the beginning of the book, we enter the throne room of heaven. God is seated on the throne, and the angels are entering one by one. Then Satan slithers in. God asks him what he's been up to, and Satan responds, You know, just watching people down there, looking for somebody I can make rebel against you. Then God does an unthinkable thing. He asks Satan if he would consider his servant Job, a man who we are told was blameless and upright and who feared the Lord. Satan responds, of course I haven't considered him. He worships you. Why wouldn't he worship you? You've given him a beautiful family, a lovely wife, plenty of possessions and wealth. But you know what? I bet that if you let me take all that from him, he'll curse you straight to your face. God responds, I permit you, I permit you, but you cannot touch Job. Now at this point, we should be thinking, wait, what What happened? What is God doing? This is in the Bible. You can read it. I'm I'm, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, obviously, but it's in here. And so the scene then switches from heaven. Now we're with Job and one one messenger after another comes into him with horrible news. Job, your servants have been murdered. Job, all your livestock has been burned up by fire. And if that wasn't enough, Job, all of your children have been killed in an accident. And then we're left to see Job's response to this tragedy. We're told that upon hearing this news, Job tears his robe, shaves his head, falls on the ground, And then catch this, he worships. He declares, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Then the scene switches again. Now we're back in heaven at the throne of God. Josiah mentioned when he started leading worship that God hears our singing. God heard Job's singing. We see a familiar scene. The angels are coming in one by one. Satan again slithers in. Though this time I bet he was a little bit less confident in himself. God asks him again, have you considered my servant Job? And Satan says, well, if you allow me to touch him, he will curse you. Last time you let me take the things around him. This time, if you let me mess with him directly, he'll curse you. And so God allows Satan to inflict sores upon Job from, his, from the top of his head to the sole of his foot. Job's covered in sores. And yet again, Job's response is worship. And then nearly after 40 more chapters of dialogue between Job and his not-so-friendly friends, we find God meeting Job in the midst of his trial. Into the silence, God speaks, and he makes his presence known. Now, we don't get an answer to every question, but we do get a picture of a God who is with us, who hears us, who is close to us, who is in control, and who is worthy of our utmost trust, even when we can't make sense of the things that are going around around us. At the end of this story, Job came face to face with God and experienced his compassion and mercy. He remained steadfast and trusting in God, and God restored him. This is why James holds Job up as an example of patience. Now I love what Charles Spurgeon has to say about this. He's my favorite preacher. This is a long quote. It should be up here on the screen. He said, or rather, he preached. Observe well that the patience of Job was the patience of a man like ourselves, imperfect and full of infirmity. For, as one is well remarked, we have heard of the impatience of Job as well as, of his, in, uh, as, well as his patience. I'm glad the divine biographer was so impartial, for had not Job been somewhat impatient, we might have thought his patience to be altogether inimitable and above the reach of ordinary men. The traces of imperfection which we see in Job prove all the more powerfully that grace can make grand examples of common constitutions, and that keen feelings of indignation under injustice need not prevent a man's becoming a model of patience. I am thankful that Job did speak somewhat bitterly and proved himself a man, for now I know that it was a man like myself who said, the Lord gave and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It was a man of flesh and blood, such as mine, who said, Shall we receive good at the hand of God, and shall we not receive evil? Yea, it was a man of like passions with myself who said, Though he slay me, yet I will trust in him. Ye have heard of the patience of of your Lord and Master, and tried to copy it, and half despaired. But now ye have heard of of the patience of his servant Job, and knowing as Job did that your Redeemer liveth, ye should be encouraged to emulate him in obedient submission to the will of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, Job had a great reason to be patient. He had a great God. We too have this same great God. We have a God who is worthy of our trust no matter the circumstances. Time and time again, he demonstrates that he is kind and compassionate. And caring towards us. Spurgeon once asked himself, What do I know of patience when I compare myself with Job? We would do well to ask ourselves the same question. If Job, a man who experienced far more hardship than we will ever likely face, if he had reason to be patient on God and wait for him, then how much more do we? By God's grace, we can be a people known for our patience. A patience that comes to us from God, a patience that has been demonstrated time and again by God in his relation to us. In fact, we must be a people who are patient with God, knowing that he is accomplishing something in us as well as around us. And we must look forward to the day where he is coming again. We must be a people who are patient with others knowing that grumbling and complaining have no place in the people of God. We must be a people who take the example of those who came before us, people like Job, and exercise this patient endurance in the midst of trial. Spurgeon, again, he said once of patience that patience is a grace as difficult as it is necessary and as hard to come at as it is precious when it is gained. I close with one more quote from him. It is the Holy Ghost, ever patient under our provocations, who calls us to be patient. It is Jesus, the unmurmuring sacrifice, who charges us to be patient. It is the long-suffering Father who bids us be patient. O you who are soon to be in heaven, be patient for yet a little while, and your reward shall be revealed. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your patience towards us. You call us to patience, um, which is something that you yourselves do. You do it yourself. You have displayed it time and time again with us. For those of us who are Christians, you are patient, waiting for us to come to faith in you. For those who are non-Christians here, Lord, you are still being patient. Pleading with them, using your church to call them to repentance and faith in Christ. And God, we look to Christ ultimately as the one who endured trial and persecution and torture for us. He endured these things patiently. He didn't deserve it, but he died on the cross. And he didn't grumble, he didn't complain, but instead he said, Father, forgive them. God, we look to Christ as our example of patience. And we ask for your spirit to work patience deep in our hearts. Help us to be a people who are patient, a people who can reflect the kind of patience you have extended to us. Allow us to extend it to others. We ask this in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen.